I use this metaphor of T-Rex, some of my conversations. If you look at T-Rex when they roamed the earth for 300 million years, they were the top of the food chain, right? So think of them as the number one market share. And they didn't get a lot of grief. They went around, they went whatever they wanted to do. They ate others, they made little T-Rexes and moved on, right? <laughs> that was their life. Not a bad life for right? T-Rexes. Pretty good years. For, for 300 million years, they dominated the world. Why did they go extinct? Most paleontologists will tell you. It went extinct because some existential event happened in the world that killed off the leaves and the vegetation that the animals that T-Rex used to eat fed on. Those animals died off. T-Rex starved to death. Unfortunately, T-Rex had a brain the size of a walnut and could not adapt to their changing environment. Sound familiar? Hey folks, I'm Sarah Wheeler, Editor-in-Chief at HW Media, and I'm excited to present this podcast interview between Clayton Collins, CEO at HW Media and host of the Housing News Podcast, and Brian Hale, CEO of Mortgage Advisory Partners. Brian and Clayton met in person at HousingWire's headquarters in Dallas, and you can feel the in-person energy. You dive into demographics, consolidation staffing, money ball concepts, and more in this episode full of exciting topics for our industry today. I hope you enjoy this episode between Clayton and Brian as much as I did. Mr. Hale, thanks for coming into the Housing Owner Office today. Thrilled to have you here. Well, I'm glad to be here, but you can't call me Mr. Hale. That's my dad. So please, I'm Brian. Man. You know, that's I, I mean that out of... I don't know. It's just like a colloquial uh, yeah. way, but Brian, thank yeah, you for having you. Yeah, thank, thank you for you. having you here. Yeah. Um, thrilled that we had the chance to connect at housing our annual a few weeks back. And uh, now that you're are, are back in Texas for a little bit of time, thrilled to have you here in the office and have a conversation about what's happening in mortgage and housing today. Glad to be here. I'm excited to do, uh, to do this. And it was great to get a chance to come down and visit your offices and uh, get to meet some of the rest of the folks. So. Yeah, no, we're, we're thrilled to have you. So, uh, one of my colleagues, Mike Simonson, who leads Altos, has a has a phrase that we've been coaching to internally: "No agenda, no attenda." So, like, if there's not a, not a meeting plan, right. we're not going to have it. So, I'm going to tell our audience right now what we're gonna what we're gonna tackle in this conversation. We're going to start off talking about demographics. There's been some articles and quotes out there from analysts like Meredith Whitney that I think are worth digging into. We're going to move into consolidation staffing, some of the trends we're seeing happening at the industry level and leadership level inside of the industry. We're going to wrap it up talking about some money ball concepts and how origination leaders can leverage data and information to lead their organizations into success in 2024. But Brian, as we were, we were prepping for this, I saw you post uh, an article and a comment on LinkedIn about Meredith Whitney, who we're getting ready. I shared, like I was following her back in, 708 as she was starting to make some housing wire calls. I had friends that worked with her, I think at Oppenheimer right. at the time. And, and you were doing the same thing. We're in different, yeah. different parts of the country, different yeah, roles, absolutely. but you were following her. I've as been well. in the room with her. I, first of all, I just think she's a really bright analyst. I, you know, she gets it more right than wrong. Let's yep. just say that. Right? But she's not afraid to make bold calls. And no, when you make bold not. calls, sometimes right. um, you're either early, like you say wrong or early, or can, can often be the same thing. But Meredith came out um, in an article and started talking about silver tsunami, a phrase that's been used in housing and small business ownership and a lot of other industries for years. She's talking about this potential demographic wave of baby boomers downsizing or selling their homes. Uh, a lot of people interpret that type of call as a threat to housing. It's going to be a flood that's going to 
crush the market and crush inventory. But I don't think she quite meant it that way. Give us a view into what you think Meredith's talking about. Yeah. So first of all, you know, and when I posted it, I said, I don't know if I always agree with everything that Meredith yeah. wrote, which is a bold statement on my part, because she's a lot smarter of an analyst than I am. Right. So to, to suggest that I see it slightly different, I don't see it different in terms of the gray wave and or the uh, maybe the urgency of it, meaning yeah. that it's not like tomorrow or the next week or whatever. And she's not really saying that either. Um, the, the, cons- the, the only thing I might, I don't know if I don't even want to use the word object or see slightly different today it would be great if you had the gray wave where the boomers, so I'm a boomer, right? So I turned 68 this year. And so I'm, I'm well into the boomer years, right? And for the boomers to trade down, right? The, the theory of her premise is that they trade down, they downsize, yep. they do, maybe they go to Florida or Scottsdale or, you know, go someplace warm where you're not shoveling the weather every winter, you know, that kind of stuff. I totally get that. I grew up on the Canadian border. I don't live there <laughs> anymore. And so the reality is the question today would be if all the boomers wanted to downsize tomorrow, is there inventory for them to downsize into? And the short answer is no, right, today. Now, I also believe, you know, we're sitting here today and CPI was reported this morning, came in very favorable, suggesting that the Fed may well be done, suggesting that, you know, inflation's moderating, rates are down materially, the 10-year is under 450 as we sit here today. Stock market shot. Stock market shot through the roof, right? It's all good. My personal investment account's loving it (laughs) um, on both ends of that. And, um, but that said, I do believe that a big key to this, and it seems a little circular, is as rates begin to moderate, and I personally believe they will in 24 and into 25, I think you'll see many more properties come onto market. Secondly, the home builders are building as fast as they can. I mean, literally, there's a, there's a pick a number, somewhere between three and five million shortage of homes in the U.S. today. But the home builders have identified this silver tsunami as well, and they're building over 55 communities and those kinds of things for those folks to downsize and into. They're, and they're still focusing in on like the, the what we call the sand states in the last wave, yes. the, the Arizona, yes. Texas. Yes. I would uh, say Alabama, even just the smile states, right? Smile states. You see yeah. them. You see them from. You see yeah. the under over 55 communities from Seattle all the way around to Maryland. Right? I actually, I mean, haven't used that term before, but I understand what you're saying. Yeah, exactly. So. <laughs> Uh, and if you ask any home builder, they understand smile states completely okay. because that's where they're all dominated, right? All the way around the country yep. from the high Northwest around to like the mid Atlantic yep. and everything in between. Right. Um, the reality is, is that I do believe that boomers will downsize and, or God forbid they die off. Right. The reality is it'll drive homes for sale and inventory back yep. into the market being good for first time home buyers. Now, a little bit of the piece that I also kind of question in my head because I have two millennial sons. I just spent, uh, my older son just got married and Saturday night was his reception here in Garland. It's one of the reasons we're out here. And uh, so I spent some time with a hundred of his friends, right? Saturday night having a few uh, adult beverages and talking about they're all in the process of buying a home, got married, having kids, do those kinds of things. Interestingly Mm -hmm. enough, a lot of boomers and the Gen Zs are not a big fan of the housing stock that the boomers own. So that'll give me a little issue, but I think actually there's going to be an opportunity for Home Depot in there, right? To kind of rehab the house yeah. or rehab, you know, construction. I do believe the gray wave is real. Mm-hmm. I do believe it'll impact the market. I don't think it's going to crush the market. If anything, it might have a moderation between the gray wave and lower rates. You will see people who feel locked in today by their low interest rates, right? They don't want to go buy another house because they've got a 3% mortgage. 
their house is up 40% in value to buy the same house at today's interest rates, 40% higher price. Many Americans today couldn't afford to buy the house they're living in to qualify, right? As rates come down, that'll moderate. Properties will come back on the market. You'll see a little bit, it's not a depressive effect on, on housing values, but I think you'll see a moderation in the rate of increase, certainly. And you'll see a flood of buyers coming in because there's a second tsunami. The second tsunami is the second half of Gen X plus the millennials plus the Gen Zs. You take those three components, they're two and a half times larger than the boomers ever were in terms of sheer population. And just like the boomers, once they get married and have a kid, they think about home ownership, they think about good schools, they think about all the things the boomers thought about, right? And they move in. They're later, they've delayed for a whole bunch of reasons, some right not. But they I mean, go to I'm it. what they call a geriatric millennial, and uh, we're at the stage where uh, you start thinking about the, 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 the next uh, the right. next school district. That's exactly a little, right. A little more space, yeah, or you have a second like, kid yeah. or a third kid or whatever, yeah. and you got to you know change houses. And I do think that tsunami is so positive for our industry for the next five to ten yeah. years. I'm wildly bullish on the business for the next five to ten years. I just think we still got twelve months of difficult times. So I think we often confuse and conflate the different components of, of the housing market. So the industry and the folks that we're talking to today, the mortgage professionals, real estate professionals, we, we thrive with, with volume and we need people, we need sellers and buyers and people not staying in one house forever, having the lock in effect. Um, That doesn't always move in lockstep with home prices. So the home price appreciation we've seen the last two and a half years has become at a serious detriment to transaction volume. If you believe in the, lock-in theory. Yes. So could a forecasted reduction or flattening in home prices in 2024 or 25 actually be a really positive thing for mortgage and real estate professionals? Or that's how do you view. kind of think of that equal That's my view. Point? Yeah. Look, if you go back, I, I get asked this when I'm interviewed all the time because I, I ran the biggest operation in the in the industry during the 07, 08 yep. period, right? Um, how was is, how is this time compared to that time, right? And it's not even close to the same. This is far more difficult simply because even though there was much pain and dislocation during that period, people remained selling houses. Yep. There were transactions to be had. Maybe you were financing a, a foreclosure or you were doing uh-huh. something else, but transactions mm-hmm. existed. So you say like more pain in this period now, but that's pain for the housing professional where like the homeowner like felt it in that like 08, 09, yes. 10 period yes. because prices got wiped out. So yes. We can, we're never going to get impacted their net worth, impacted their net worth. Right. And but there were still people, transactions for mortgage people and real estate folks were selling and financing properties. Yep. Yeah. Right. So, so I mean, it's I, just a transference of pain. I think that's um, like, it's an important point to make because this, this crisis rim right now, right. like we might make the, the headlines of transaction volume or home sales being at, um, you know, multi-decade lows, but the homeowner's not really feeling it the same way. They might feel a little oh. heartburn. They can't move up to that next house or, but look, if you were already a homeowner in 20 or 21 and you had the good fortune to refi into a two and a half to three and a half percent mortgage, oh. you're loving it. You've got a really low cost of acquisition of the house. Oh, we're going to be the ones who you, like live in a neighborhood that like we can't afford in right. like 10 or 20 years. Right. And, 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 and yeah. then you got 40 or 50% house appreciation on top of it. So, and it's a little bit why homeowners today now have a disproportionate amount of wealth in the U.S. versus non-homeowners, right? Because they've got that huge equity buildup over the last two or three years. They've been sitting with low low payments, the ability to spend that money on a new car or other things, yeah. right? 
So the wealth effect has been materially impacted by homeowners, yeah. two homeowners. Yeah, no, I think that's a perfect point. So we talked about like, so the, the pain right now has been on the, the industry side. That pain leads to require some action. So like we came into 2023 expecting a pretty get pretty big or significant consolidation wave of mortgage lenders. Um, analysts and forecasters suggested that the industry from a headcount perspective would need to be smaller given the transaction volume. So give us a glimpse into how you're seeing those trends play out in 2023. Yeah. So a couple of quick numbers I'm sure you're familiar with. If you take from March of 21, the industry was on pace to do about 4.3 trillion of origination volume to today. The industry volume is off between 75 and 80%. Yep. The industry hasn't shrunk 75 to 80%. Um, the reality is that um, the industry has yet to shrink as much as it likely needs to, to eliminate excess capacity. And that excess capacity today is still driving cost up. It's driving margins down, revenues down because of competition yeah. and competition is good for the homeowner, but not always, you know, it's if, if nobody's making any money, one of the things I'm passionate about is to have a very diverse, healthy mortgage industry in the United States. I don't think we want massive consolidation up to two or three companies. I think we want a diverse. Well, it's part of the base. beauty of the housing industry. It is. So it is. Real estate it industry also is insulates our economy, right? So no, you can't be too big to fail, right? Those kinds of things. We, we also, at least on the real estate side, operate in an industry where the housing, there's not a single national housing market. Correct. Like we move as, in a, uh, we kind of move together as hundreds of different MSAs. Yeah, look, and I, I real estate market that. has that fragmentation. Mortgage is a little, plays a little more nationally. Right. Look, I've preached that for years. There are about 625 discrete real estate markets yeah. in the United States. And really smart, articulate lenders price to those different markets individually, right? Yeah. Because there's different customer sets, different competitor sets, you name it, in all those uh -huh. in all those markets. That said, I think that the industry is not done consolidating. We saw some data data from Ingenious a couple of about a month and a half ago. Jeff does some good work. Jeff does some great work. Yeah. At his group that suggested that about eighty five thousand originators who were licensed and had done at least one transaction in the previous year. So an active originator had left the industry. Wait, sorry, sorry, eighty-five thousand had left. Left. Okay, left the industry. Right. So down materially, that was a huge step down in the number of originators. Add to that, and my youngest son actually runs licensing for a lender uh, in the industry. And so the, right now you're in license renewal period, starting yeah. November one, right, for all the states to renew all the licenses. If you're an originator that hasn't done any volume or you've done nominal volume, or maybe you've moved on to another career, you're not likely to renew your license. So we're going to see, in my opinion, because of renewals, we could see another significant step down in the number of licensed originators. Now, it doesn't count many times bank originators who don't have to be licensed, so it's hard to get a handle on that number. But if you just use a plug for that, you still have a huge consolidation going on. People haven't felt like there's been way fewer companies, although there's a ton of M&A going on, some of it very quietly, right? The process, particularly on asset deals uh -huh. that are between private companies that don't get announced, right? And those kinds of things. But what is happening is consolidation at the originator, processor, underwriter, closer level shrinking dramatically. So the lenders got relatively aggressive on reducing headcount in operations roles and processing, underwriting. Likely um, not enough. Likely not enough, but are they wait? Okay. So we're going to go, I'm going to come back on that on the originator side. Um, 
lower cost structure, a lot of eat what you kill, commission only models. Are the lenders just kind of waiting on natural attrition to redu- like at the at the year end licensing point? It's like there? everything else in business, some are, some aren't. Some are yeah. confused by the question, right? <laughs> so, and I and I mean that because I I see it as an as a consultant now. I'm inside yeah. a lot of companies, and some people are very smart and moving very quickly and recognizing yeah. that in many cases, from a Salesforce management standpoint. You may be eliminating non-producers. This whole concept that an originator who doesn't close anything doesn't cost you anything, it's just not true. You got benefit costs. You got all kinds of administrative costs. Typically, folks who do very low volumes tend to make the most mistakes. Yep. And so- And a, cause the most headaches yeah, and like the most mean, HR just, issues. It's just not smart up management to have low-producing, in a meritocracy- you want folks who produce, right? And and drag down morale. Yes, I exactly. think you see that in exactly. sales organizations. Nobody right. wants to be around the C player. Like, exactly. Or the yeah. D player or the yeah. F player, right? And so and then secondly, a lot of people are trying to add A's and B's to their mix and eliminate the rest, right, in the process. So some are very aggressive, very thoughtful, very strategic about that. Some are less so. And some are, frankly, have taken the position. I see it more in... Um, the entrepreneur-driven companies that have maybe been built over 20 or 25 or 30 years, and there's a real sense of family uh-huh. within the company, whether they're family or not, some may be, yep. some are not, of a resistance to say, no, I made a lot of money in 2021. I'm going to put some of it back into the company. I'm going to carry it because this too shall pass. And my, my commentary for the last 18 months is not necessarily. It doesn't have to pass. And secondly, when it does pass, it'll be a long time from now. And so if you're putting money back, okay, so let's say you're a entrepreneur, operator, owner, own a significant part of the cap table, you pulled a lot of money out, you choose to put that money back in to support headcount. That's probably money you're not putting back in to technology investments, marketing, like driving efficiencies. So that organization not only could turn the corner into 2024 with a more bloated cost structure than necessary, but they're also several steps behind their competition yes. who got lean and invested if they invested in, but invested in growth areas, not. And I'm not sure anybody's gotten lean. You know, one of the yep. numbers you look at from the MBA, I think um, your guy Logan has some of this data as well. If you look at the cost to originate a loan today, after the last five or six years of the industry investing hundreds of millions of dollars in technology, the cost has never been higher. Today, yep. right now, that's a function of shrunk volumes and fixed cost and GNA cost and things. You, it's hard to get rid of if you're going to be in the business. Yep. You got to, you still have to have compliance people. You got to comply. You got to do those things, right? So, so you have less volume divided into that cost. So your cost is up as a result. So I don't know that anybody has really achieved uber efficiency. Yeah, it maybe it's on a relative basis. I, I see companies all the time who their costs are two x somebody else. That's a problem. You're not, you know, if, if you're putting cash back into that without a strategy, capital, fresh capital back in, it's the equivalent of setting the cash in the middle of this table and setting it on fire. Where's the best benchmarking data? Like how, like if you're a mortgage operator, an entrepreneur, like how do you know that you're the, you're the player that's operating at two X, the cost structure of your. Well, your look, I'll, uh, and I don't, I don't suggest that I'm a competitor to these guys cause I'm not, but Folks like Stratmore, who do a really good job yeah. working with the NBA to benchmark uh, the industry. Um, uh, Mike Fretz and Tony from the NBA puts out a lot of data that uh-huh. you can acquire and purchase on a, on a subscription basis where you can kind of see your benchmark of cost revenues by lender type and size, right? You yeah. don't want to compare, you don't want to compare a rocket to 
you know, a guy who's doing a billion dollars a year as an entrepreneur mortgage company in two cities, right? That's an unfair comparison. Uh, so they tend to do it by size and by type, consumer direct versus retail versus wholesale versus other types yeah. of lenders. I think they do a lot of really good work there. Um, I think, frankly, there's an opportunity for the industry to do much better from a data standpoint. It's the thing I might be the most passionate about. I think the industry is missing it, not using enough data in a variety of ways to help drive their business. But, so data is available. It's available. Uh, it might not be as accessible here's, as you want Here's, a, here's a, just a little side story. Um, I have a world-class analyst that works with me, Tracy Lewis. And virtually every company we go into as a client or as a prospective client, I get all the data first. I get, you know, give me your financials, give me all your key metrics, all those kinds of things. And oftentimes we'll get the answer, we don't have that data or we don't have that data here. Virtually 100% of the time, they have the data. But it's either not mined or more importantly, it isn't organized and formatted in a way that management can make yeah. decisions from the data. And so I, I can't tell you how many meetings I've been in with a CEO or CFO and we're showing them our analysis and they're going, where'd you get this data from you? Right. Just organized and for formatting of data, how you lay it out to allow management to make decisions is, in my view, as important as the underlying data. Yeah. If I give you a stack three inches thick of reports, not helpful. Is there a scale, is there a size or a scale of lender where you start to see like an FP&A function become a normal part of the, the org or like? I have a view that, I mean, unless you're the smallest sub half a billion a year. To me, I would figure out who else I don't have. So I have a world-class FP&A person with a reporting system showing me because otherwise it's the net equivalent of flying a plane at 4,000 feet at night with no gauges around 12,000 foot mountains. I don't want to get on that plane. Right. Exactly. <laughs> and, and, and I see that all the time where, well, we're not going to invest 120 grand in an FB&A person yet. Margins are not thoughtful. Costs are not understood. They use what I call the big bucket of theory of yeah. accounting where you just pour in the revenue at the top. You take out your expenses. What do you have left? That's great. But how did you create the revenue? Why do you have the expenses? Where are the expenses? Are the expenses different by originator and by branch and by corporate and by corporate function? If you know that data, and you can do it. Our, our tagline for our company at Mortgage Advisory Partners is granular analysis, strategic direction. But it starts with granular analysis. Do you know the data? And that's just a little bit of how I grew up in the industry. All right. So if we're going to tell our audience like to you know, pull out a pen and like take a note here. How would you how would you write that job description for the one hundred twenty thousand dollar a year FP&A person who could actually help a mortgage operator right. run a more efficient operation? The key to the criteria is not just great Excel skills and reporting and formatting skills; it's data management skills as well, right? Oftentimes, your loan origination and origination systems, your accounting systems within a small mortgage operator, even a medium. Look, yeah. I see, I see, I have a client who's about a billion five a year distributed retail originator who has the most sophisticated financial analysis you've ever seen, right? Done in a very thoughtful way. And the business is very much numbers driven, right? And I see companies that are in the top 10 that are not as sophisticated in terms of their analysis, yeah. right? So it's, there's no magic there, but the answer to your question, the data management part of it, can you consolidate into like drop it into a database or something and then write the reports off that. Yep. But the big part of that is show me the formatting. If I was interviewing that person for the company, 
Show me how you formatted reports in the past. Show me what you've done in the past in ways that make decisioning for the senior team, the division head, the head of production, whatever the case, head of fulfillment, that makes it in a way that, one, I can see trended data quickly. And I have a, this is terrible. I use the word, don't show me cartoons. And what I mean by that is don't show me graphs. Graphs are cool if you're going to make a presentation in front of 200 people. If you want to sit down and analyze a company, show me rows and columns yep. in order with 13 months of data side by side so I could quickly see the trends, see what's happening currently versus last month versus six months ago versus a year ago, and be able to pick that up in two seconds. So show me how you format the data. Show me how you organize the data. And oh, by the way, you have to work with the production and, and fulfillment head to understand what are their needs to know? What do they need to know to execute and do their job? And can you then format it in a way that says, all right, Clayton, here's where your data is. Here are three options that you could improve this on. Which would you prefer? That's value. So it's not print me three inches worth of reports and let me figure it out on my own. Yeah, no, nobody wants the, the war and peace right. version of, uh, of, of analysis. Can you get it on one page? Yeah. yeah. Two at the most. Yeah. With, with no cartoons. Okay. I'm right, with the, no right, cartoons. So we need, so we need a finan- FP&A yeah. analyst or manager, whatever the job title is. Right. They, they can't, do they need to be from the housing industry? Can nope. they, should the executive team be it, able it to helps. tell them what they need? I think it helps if you have mortgage experience, if you're in yeah. the mortgage side or the real estate yeah. side, whatever the case may be. This is just terminology. You know, if you understand, you know, gap accounting and mortgage looks like gap accounting written by crack addicts. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's the most non-intuitive piece of accounting, yeah. you know, that you can imagine. I've explained it on Wall Street before. The person on the other side yeah. of the table looks at you and goes, what? Right? That's how it works. And so if you know that, it's helpful. But you don't have to know that. A good analyst or a great data analyst, it starts with, what do you want to know about your company, Clayton? Right. What are the what are the four or five things that you worry about? You wake up in a cold sweat at night thinking about. Can I then design a report that tracks that for you, shows you what's happening and gives you options around it? Margin management, the ability to differentiate revenue streams and different pricing across the country, in my humble opinion, is critical to success today. People say, well, I don't think I can maybe get 10 basis points out of that. 10 basis points today could be living or dying. Well, because it's not, I mean, it's, it's business management, but now we're getting into compliance management too. Like if you're going to like stay yes. in compliance. Then you have fair or, lending yep. considerations about differential pricing strategies, those kinds of things. Cause you know, your competition is pricing aggressively in markets where they need fair housing exposure. So if you're not making that Correct. adjustment, Correct. you're going to get blown out of the water. Here's what I can tell you. There's 650 markets in the U S if you price straight line across all 650, you are wrong in 80% of those markets. You're too high or too low relative to your competition in each one of those markets because you have local lenders who understand the local market who are pricing differentially. So you're either leaving revenue on the table that you could use, or you notice your production is zero because you're priced off the market. And the answer becomes, how do you get that intel to know those differences and how do you price to those differences? That's granular analysis. That's an FP&A person helping you understand what's out there. And there's a bunch of services like um, Optimal Blue. Mm-hmm. You can buy a subscription to the market data behind and how your peers are pricing. You can see that data and help inform you about how you may want to go to market. Yeah. Yeah. That's, this, yeah. We're getting into good, good topics here. The executive team needs to be willing not only to, to have the analysis and then like have the software to enable granular marketing, market, market pricing, but also be willing to act on 
act on the information and make some of the tough decisions that right. aligns the organization to match. Where the By the way, I, is I would be remiss if I didn't say this. You know, a company today might look at this and go, man, the last thing I need is another $120,000 a year expense in FP&A. But you could outsource that function to mortgage advisory partners. We, okay. <laughs> we do that for a lot of companies. We got the plug. We prepare the reports. Yeah. We show the analysis. We do them every month. We help organize it. We help format the reports. And then to the degree they have like, uh, you know, Microsoft, you know, business uh, reporting or whatever, yep. Power BI, we can embed it in the Power BI system for them. So it then becomes, it comes out every day. That's really interesting. So it starts as a, starts as like a consultative approach, yes. but ends with a solution yeah. that can. And by the way, running. I can guarantee you, you give me your data, we'll find you some expense saves and some additional revenue. Yeah. Interesting. 100% of the time. So how are you, I think there's parts of the industry, parts of me personally that believe we're, you know, start it's the darkest before the dawn or like starting to see what like normalization might, yep. might look like here. Light at the end of the tunnel may yep. not be a train coming the other yeah. way. Yeah, right? exactly. Yeah. Um, so that's a mindset that could lead an operator into saying, all right, organization is staffed correctly. I'm going to, I am, I'm going to stay the course and we're almost there. Like, how do you help to mistake? How do you, yeah, go, go deeper there. How do you yeah. like get the mind, the right mindset as an well, executive to manage into 24? So I'm, you know, if, People ask me this all the time. How do I like being a consultant versus a CEO? It's the one thing I don't like about being a consultant. I can't make things happen. Right? I can give strong suggestions. I can yep. set myself on fire. I can run around and tip over the furniture in the conference room. I can do all those things. But if you're the CEO and you decide not to do it, then it's not going to happen. right? If, if, if your people don't understand you're committed, it's not going to happen. Yep. So I have a little clause in my agreement. If that happens, we're done because I, don't, I have the good fortune in life. I don't have to do this for a living. I like doing it with people I like on complicated topics. And I like helping the industry whenever I can, because it's been great to Brian Hale and his family for 40 years. Um, so um, how do you, first, you have to accept the premise. I think that whether you're profitable or maybe you feel like you're killing it or you're not profitable or you're marginally profitable, uh-huh. or marginally unprofitable, every one of those cases can be improved. So I always start with, don't tell me how profitable you are. Tell me if it was optimized or not, right? Did you get that extra 10 basis points? Did you get an extra three basis points? Think about this. If you go back, I think probably Logan has some of this data, but if you look at MBA data over the last 10 or 15 or 20 years, a traditional distributed retail originator typically made all in three eighths to 50 basis points net, fully net pre-tax, mm-hmm. okay? In that kind of, and remember, we just went through a couple of years where people were making 200 basis points net, right? Yep. So it, 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 it completely blows away a sense of reality. So now you're back at- The real estate brokers are listening to this, like, y'all are making money? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, well, 90% of the mortgage business are going, who's making money? Yeah. Right? You know, yep. kind of thing. So, so, but in that environment, whether you're making or not, right, the process, if you assume that a more traditional year is 30 to 50 basis points- yeah. Three basis points, maybe 10% of your pre-tax earnings, three basis points, or 10 basis points, maybe 20% change in your bottom line in terms of meeting your warehouse covenants, your GSE covenants in terms of liquidity and net worth and earnings and being profitable and you know all of those things you have to concern yourself with. So when people tell me, well, we only think there's a couple of basis points in that. Yes, a couple of basis points times 10 ideas. Is 20 basis points. And it's a couple or 20 basis points that not only brings more profit in the organization, 
but that you can deploy back into growth Invest. initiatives or pricing and you owe it to your originators to make this happen. I had the good fortune to be a really prolific originator early in my career back when Willie Mammoth walked the face of the earth in the early eighties. <laughs> um, and you gave me grief for calling you Mr. Hale. Yeah, exactly. Well, I'm just old. Um, you know, people always uh, I got in when, um, when, uh, I mentioned to you, Alec Hansen interviewed me the other day and Alec, you know, referred to me as a legend. I'm like, come on, man. First of all, legend is just another word for old. That's all that is. So I've, I'm, I'm over that. But my point being is that, um, I've said this from the beginning best friend an originator has is to work for a profitable mortgage company because they can invest in technology, in marketing, in support tools, in support personnel. They can make things go faster. Yeah. They can have better fulfillment. They can do all those things. If you're working, you know, bad things happen to good companies that don't make money. It's that simple. Yep. It's not unique about our business, by the way. That's true of every business out there, right? And so profitable growth. Somehow, in the, somehow in the industry, I think we've gotten to this place. It's one of my pet peeves where it's the originators against the company. You know, I don't care if you make money. Or not. You should, you should. If you're a long-term professional, I don't care if you're a lawyer. If you're a lawyer working for a law firm that doesn't make any money, you're not going to be a lawyer for that law firm very long. And the more you hop around, the less consistent your referral sources know who you are and what to expect, Right. So you should be, and this is where the Moneyball thing with Dave and, and Jim Deach and others, yeah. myself, that have been talking about, it's about helping companies be healthy economically or get back to healthy so you can then invest in your sales force, in your fulfillment team, in reward and recognition programs, and in the yeah. things that make coming to work every day good. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. So as we close out the conversation, Brian, we've talked, we've talked a lot today. We've gone from demographics M&A, staffing, data, what's one topic that you don't think is getting enough attention in housing or mortgage right now? Where, where's it, is, there, is there a blind spot the industry has? There's a blind spot executives have where there should be a little more attention focused as yeah. we turn this and, corner. And I always try not to do these broad brush kind of paint everybody the same. Yeah. One thing I don't understand, I look at the, the um, data companies today. I mean, you run one in Altos. Yeah. Um, Companies like MMI, CoreLogic, or others that provide data about what originators are doing, what kind of volume, what companies are doing, what kind of volume. In wholesale, you can see where the brokers are sending their business. Yep. Um, they, and then in many systems, and the only one I'm, I'm personally totally familiar with is MMI because I've, I've gone through a demo with that and seen the capabilities of it, but I'm sure others do yeah. something similar. You can swim upstream through the originator to see the realtors that are referring them that business, right? So go to the real estate side. Yep. A couple of quick stats. And, and I, I got this from a prop tech company that's a client of mine. The top one and a half percent of agents in 2022 did about 68% of all sales in America. Top 2% were up in the 70s. The top 10% approached the high 80s. If your sales force is calling on the bottom 50% of real estate agents in America, I don't care how good your price is, how fast your service is, what's going on. There's probably no loans today yep. because they're just not, you know, they were the, and I'm not being, I'm not knocking these realtors, but they were likely the marginal realtors that were in the business as a second income, as a retirement role, as something else. It's not, it's not their all in and be all. The real big producers, you can spot them a mile away because yep. these are these are CEOs of their own business. They're thoughtful. They're running it. They're all over it. They have a team. 
right? And they're, and they're eating up market share. And that consolidation, I can assure you, Clayton, is consolidating to the top. Oh, yeah. With the commission lawsuits right, right. now, there's like more and more power accelerate. Like focusing to the, the high producers. So, it's accelerate. So, so real quick to answer your question is what I don't get and what I don't see is CEOs or heads of production using data and querying their originators. Who are you calling on? Who are your referral sources? Can we see if they actually do business or not? There's a big difference between if you're going to be a successful company or originator in our business, it's helpful to call on people who sell real estate, not just people who are in real estate, right? Big diff, right? In that process. So the use of data, forward-looking, I think it is forward radar. James Heck said it at your conference when we were on the panel together, you know, I should, I should trademark this. It's about understanding your business by looking at the windshield to your referral sources, not through the rearview mirror, but what your data suggests about your past or your history, right? And that kind of process. And so figure out who is selling real estate, the builders, those top agents, is your sales force matched against them? Now, maybe you still don't win because maybe you're off in price or your service isn't good or whatever it is. You got at least you're focusing on where the opportunity is. Right. Exactly. So we haven't productized this, but I, I sat down with Originator a few months ago and had um, our Altos team pull top agents in two zip codes where this Originator does a majority of his business. Yes. And um, did that Originator know any of them? Not in the top fifty. Yeah. Um, okay. And like it was the uh, the the lead referral sources. I think your rear mirror analogy is spot on. Well. Cindy sent me 14 deals in the last two years. Yes. Cindy's the 99th. Or, or I've been like, doing business with this person for 15 years. Yep. Yep. And yeah, Cindy's retiring. Yeah. And uh, right. she hasn't done anything this year. And right. if you keep sending. Because it's really hard now. Yep. If you keep calling on her, you're going to do the exact same right. production Cindy did in 2023. And that was zero. Right. And so like, I think this, I love this example. It's giving me business ideas. <laughs> like, I think right. there's something we can productize here. Yeah. No doubt about it. Look, <laughs> and I've, I, I use this metaphor of T-Rex yeah. a lot in some of my conversations you know, if you look at T-Rex, when they roamed the earth for 300 million years, they were the top of the food chain, right? So think of them as the number one market share, right? Yep. And they didn't get a lot of grief. They went around, they went whatever they wanted to do. They ate others. They made little T-Rexes and moved on, right? <laughs> that was their life. Not a bad life for right? T-Rexes. Good for 300 million years, they dominated the world. Have you seen one lately? The answer is no, of course, because they went extinct. Why did they go extinct? Most paleontologists will tell you. They went extinct because some existential event happened in the world that killed off the leaves and the vegetation that the animals that T-Rex used to eat fed on. Those animals died off. T-Rex starved to death. Unfortunately, T-Rex had a brain the size of a walnut and could not adapt to their changing environment. Sound familiar? Is there anything changing in the real estate or mortgage business in the last, so let's say, five years? How about the next five years? You're you're connecting the dots right now. You're you're bringing the full picture. Right. My view view is that change is going to accelerate at an ever-increasing rate over the next five years. Right? So when I speak to large groups, I do a fair amount of Circle of Excellence President's Club type presentations for for lenders with big groups of their top agents. And I've always asked them, so my question to you. Are you evolving with your business? Are you rethinking your business today? Or are you T-Rex in search of a tar pit? Right? Because if if you're not evolving, if you don't accept the fact that every single thing in our business has changed and is changing at an ever-increasing rate, you're not paying attention. And the business will eventually leave you. It's not that you're going to leave the business, right? The process. That's where you need to focus. Data, thoughtfulness, be the CEO of your own business. 
Think about how you run it. Think about your value to your company. What are you doing to help your company be profitable? Can you help? Can you have that mindset to do those kinds of things? And are you thoughtful about how you run your business every day? And that's a wrap for today's episode of the Housing News Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. And a special thank you to our listeners that take the time to go to Apple Podcasts and provide a review on the show. I want to share some a quick glimpse into what some of our listeners have shared. James D44 let us know that this is a great series of hugely important information for any real estate professional. DC girl Kayla shared, this is a great housing podcast that provides a great variety of information and insights on all things housing. 10 out of 10 recommend. This type of feedback is so energizing and drives us forward to continue producing great interviews for you. Please take a minute to go to the Apple podcast app and let us know what you think. Have a great day.